Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Antonella DiPizio from the Leibniz Institute for Food Systems Biology at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. She is a computational pharmacologist who studies chemosensory receptors. Her postdoctoral training in Dr. Masha Niv's lab in Israel led her to first working on GPCRs. She focused on bitter taste receptors. Now that Antonella has her own group, she uses various computational tools to better understand taste and odorant receptors, as well as trace amine receptors. Antonella is our very first computational pharmacologist guest on the show. If you are or know a computational scientist working on GPCRs, we'd love to chat with you on the podcast. Reach out to us at drgpcr.com slash podcast. And now, let's dive into our episode with Dr. Antonella DiPizio. Hello, listeners. I'm Dr. Yamina Bershish, founder of Dr. GPCR. And on today's Dr. GPCR podcast, we have the honor of having Dr. Antonella DiPizio uh, with us. Uh, she is an independent research group leader uh, in computational pharmacology at the uh, Technical Institute of Munich, more specifically at the Leibniz Institute for Food Systems of Biology. Hi, Antonella. Hi, thank you, Yamina. My pleasure. I'm so happy to have you with me today, especially with the whole time difference. Yes, but we manage. As I just mentioned, you're a computational pharmacologist. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and how you got to where you are today? Sure. As you said, my institute with this long name, so it's an institute that is focused on food system biology and it's affiliated with the Technical University of Munich. And um, I mean, it was uh, founded one year ago as a food chemistry institute. Um, but then the you know, things change and we uh, they discovered that also food is more complex. And so they wanted to have a computational section. So last year, actually I joined I mean, in October, 2018. My lab was the first group in the in silico department. And the computational pharmacology is somehow this name is trying to um, to define my group as looking at the interface between uh, um, the the food and the pharmacology that this food can have these food ingredients, but also because I look at the receptor level of the compounds, and specifically the institute is very focused on the chemical uh, reception of food, so taste and smell, and I look at the smell and taste receptors. That's so interesting. We oftentimes forget that you know to taste and smell. We also use uh, GPCRs, obviously. <laughs> they're everywhere um so how did you get into the field of gpcrs yes i'm by training i'm a medicinal chemist so i obtained my master in um, in italy at the university of Chieti, and there then i started my phd in computational medicinal chemistry in the group of mariangela gamennone and the focus on my project me with also matrix metalloproteinases. So I was working on different targets, but there I started my training as a molecular modeler. So to use all the computational tools from structure-based, ligand-based, so docking, pharmacophore, molecular dynamics, any kind of tool that you can use to design new compounds. 
And then my, uh, I decided to go for a, an European track of the PhD. Uh, so this means that you have a European committee, but mainly that you have an, an additional supervisor that, uh, and you spend a period in a different lab. And in this case, we decided to ask to Professor uh, Gerhard Klebe, who is a medicinal chemist in Marburg in Germany, and the strongly advised me to do structural biology. So I put my ends in the lab and I got my own proteins. And this was an amazing experience to get familiar with uh, the structures that I usually was used to look at the computer. And then, I mean, all this background, I mean, all these um, competencies just you know, finalize my PhD thesis, and then what to do, do next? So I start, um, I, I try to answer this question, and the answer was in Israel. So I ended up in Israel in the lab of Mashanib. So she works on these GPCRs, and this was my first meeting with GPCR, starting from the bitter side, because I started to work with bitter taste receptors. So interesting, and I have to tell our, uh our audience that Masha will be one of our future guests uh, on the podcast and we're ex excited to have her as well. I mean, this is a kind of mentor-mentee mentor relationship that is continuously, so I'm always in touch with her and I knew that I will anticipate of some of our previous results together today. <laughs> Right now, um, you look at the computational pharmacology of GPCRs, of taste receptors, and you're interested in bitter receptors. Um, am I correct? I mean, this, is, this was my postdoc. It's still a um, current interest, but now I'm trying to enlarge also to the odorant receptors. So um, I, I say I try because the odorant receptors are really complex. So it's the biggest part of the <laughs> GPCRs, so I have 400, but also I'm working in a smaller, I mean a more uh, simple repertoire that are the trace amino-associated receptors, and these are just six. Uh, they are in, expressed in the olfactory system, and they respond to amines. And, but as the name said, the response to trace amines. So they are in the interface between uh, smell perception, but also neuro perception, because these trace amines are neurotransmitters in our body. So we have, for example, the TAR1 that is expressed only in the brain, so we don't find anyone in the odorant uh, system, but we have the other five that are expressed in the odorant system. And then we have some that are both in the brain and the odorant system. So, you know, these were the perfect match of my uh, interest in both drug discovery, but also in food and in general in the recognition of molecules. Yeah, and what's the use of having these receptors expressed in the olfactory system and in the brain? Um, you said there were six of them. What, first of all, what's the use? Second of all, what are the um, commonalities between all these six receptors? 
one of the reasons why I get in, interested in these receptors is actually more structurally because these are class age PCRs and they share a similarity with known um, crystal structure, the one that are already determined that is around the 30%. So, you know, during my postdoc, I worked in these bitter test receptors that share from 5 to 10% of identity. And this was a huge challenge. So when I saw 30%, I said, okay, this is another step. <laughs> so this is something that uh, it's already um, a good similarity to do computational work. And this, so these are somehow similar to other GPCRs. So this uh, number that I mentioned, like the 30% is with the beta-2 adrenergic receptor. Uh, so structurally are more classical GPCRs and functionally uh, there is not a lot known, but a lot of interest. So the TAR, TAR one uh, in 2019 was um, like uh, defined by the FDA like a breakthrough treatment for schizophrenia. So um, like because there is this new molecule that activates this um, receptor that is like a breakthrough in the area. So th these are the TAR one that is the most studied from pharmacologically is thought to be a relevant target in neurodegenerative disease and neurological disease. Uh, for the others, there is a lot to do. And the main thing that, I mean, the basic thing that we need to do is to find more ligands. So this is why I think that computational chemists can help because, for example, the TAR5, the one we are currently working now, we have just very few agonists um, in the number of five, you know, it's not few 500, you know, what we are, the number that we are usually uh, thinking in a pharmaceutical order. <laughs> so it's really almost an orphan receptor. And, but still when it, it was recently found that when it's expressed in the brain, it alterates the serotonin levels. And in mice, when you have a knockout, you see th this behavior like anti-anxiety, antidepressant behavior. So an antagonist of this receptor can be used, I mean, in future can be developed as uh, for uh, depression, anxiety, and all these um, psychological disorders. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah, so there's five, five ligands, you can count them literally on one hand um, in this case. Um, if you had to choose one favorite receptor, or one family of receptors, you know, with your eyes closed saying, which, uh, which one uh, would it be? Uh, I have many to choose, so no. <laughs> so, I mean, um, maybe uh, it depends on the time. I mean, I mean, because as you were saying, GPCR are everywhere. So if I wake up, for sure, I would like uh, my favorite receptor is one of the odorant receptors that make me smell the coffee. <laughs> uh, but I also like a lot bitterness of the coffee. And so it's just, I really like this um, chemo reception in general because you have these GPCRs working together for your flavor and your taste. And this is, I think, just something that we experience and so we we know that taste and that flavor is a complexity of different um, signals uh, but i think that it is it is the same uh, in our body what we don't see so unraveling this role of the communication of the different receptors can somehow 
be the key also to understand more uh, the GPCR world in general. It's so interesting with the taste. Uh, I was talking to someone and they were mentioning that some people have mutated uh, taste receptors that make it uh, so that they don't like cilantro, for example. I think to them it tastes like dirt, which is very interesting. It's unique, but it's very, very interesting. I just think that this is a field that is sometimes underestimated, you know, because of course this is our sometimes I mean, are more important is life or uh, living or dying. So it's something that always is considered less important. But we discovered also with this pandemic that actually we had this loss on taste and smell, like um, one of the primary symptoms of the disease. And it's really connected, you know, the biology is, is, is we are one body and there is a connection of many different uh, receptor molecules in our body. So um, it's, it, it's studying this receptor is important also for diagnostics. So it's, there, are, there, is, there are many connections on taste and smell with uh, disease currently. Definitely. I did see uh, on PubMed your paper about the loss, the, the taste receptors and the current pandemics and it being one of the symptoms. What can you tell us about, about what's known on taste receptors in the, in the context of t- loss of taste in the COVID pandemic? So um, what is until, so th- there is um, a partial knowledge until now. Everything is partial knowledge about this COVID-19 until now. And so what we know is that um, also in the olfactory epithelium, we have the expression of the S2, so the receptor of the virus. But this is, uh, um, so it's not connected with the GPCR, with the odorant receptor, but it's like that the virus uh, when binds to the receptor that is uh, present in subcellular cells, then uh, you don't have um, you have like a stop of the um, uh, of, of the smell at all. So you can have a complete anosmia. So it's a cellular damage, uh, and and it's not receptor based in, in, the, in the sense of the odorant receptor because the neuron is not affected. So the idea of the last paper was to have a perspective review of what is known, because actually this is not the first virus that affects taste and smell. It's just that this, uh, this is maybe the, best, the first virus that affects the world together. So we have huge numbers. Uh, but the idea is to understand if this virus is different at a molecular level or if it is uh, something that is more related to a com- common uh, viral infection because virus can damage the olfactory system. And in this case, we have a lot of ed- evidence also for the taste system. Wow. And uh, you had mentioned that other viruses also can damage the olfactory system and the taste system. What are these viruses? Many, many different viruses. Uh, it's not something... So I'm, I'm currently... So when the pandemic started, I just uh, we just organized this consortium from for studying this uh, phenomenon, and I just volunteered for the Italian team just to organize, you know, a questionnaire for a language thing. So I gave my email to help and to collect uh, data and to spread the questionnaire. I'm receiving so many mail of people that just lost their taste and smell suddenly, just with the normal flu and they just couldn't get it back because 
sometimes um, it's something just uh, transient and sometimes you're left I mean, with, uh, without having it back never. And it's really serious. It's not something you say, okay, I don't smell my coffee and that's okay because it really affects your lifestyle. It does. I mean, eating and having pleasure and being able to taste all those foods is so important psychologically as well. And I cannot imagine not being able to smell or taste the coffee in the morning. Yes, what I was mentioning before, coffee is so important. <laughs> it, is, it is. I think a lot of a lot of our audience and a lot of scientists can understand the importance of having the right amount of the right quantity of coffee to be able to function <laughs> during the day. So you, we're talking about um, taste receptors. What is the current knowledge base on, on taste receptors in general? Uh, you had mentioned that not it's important. Not everyone has been working on it or we don't have enough evidence, or enough information on these receptors. But what's the status of research today? I, I look at my perspective, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, bitter taste receptor, if we want to talk about bitter taste, are, of course, important uh, mainly for food. So for um, years, the idea was to find something that to make food more pleasant, the interest of food industries. So um, most of the research focused primarily, primarily on the chemists, on the chemistry of these compounds. So, so to identify these compounds, to try to block these compounds. And the receptors were identified just in the 20s, uh, the, the, the 2000. Uh, so from this year, year on, you, we started to have a more receptor-based um, research, but we don't have any crystal structures. So um, uh, the research is more food-oriented and food chemistry-oriented, and this is why we have knowledge about compounds, but we don't have a lot of knowledge about, um, I don't know, for example, the quantitative structure activity relation studies based on the strength the structure of the receptor. So currently, for example, the bitter test, we were saying that odorant receptors are many, and I mean, this is pretty well known because they are 400, but also bitter test receptors are 25. So we don't have one receptor and many compounds. So we have a repertoire of receptors that are very different among them. So the sequence identity range from uh, 15 to 19 among the same family. So we have very, pairs, a couple of bitter test receptors that are very different among them. And this is a lot of material for uh, a structured biologist, you know, and uh, for uh, a structured bioinformatics, so to analyze the sequences, to analyze the 3D structure. But until now, no one invested in the structured biology of these receptors. And this is also, uh, and also no one invested in finding the most potent compounds to help also the crystallization. And this also makes sense why you should want to have a, the super bitter compound. So it, it's, it's something that somehow doesn't go in the same part of other GPCR that we may know. So we have more uh, fractionated informations. Uh, what we actually did when I was doing my postdoc is trying to fill some of this gap. So to try to use um, virtual screening to find compounds that can, can um, accommodate the receptor in the best way. And this in order to help to characterize the binding site. So on a day-to-day -day basis, you work in front of a computer, you have a set of structures and 
what do, what do you do? Can you tell us a little bit more in practice? In practice, let's say you're interested in a taste receptor. How do you use the current information available in order to get more knowledge on bitter taste receptors, for example? Yes, there are many different levels, you know, because here we have a different level of complexity. So one can be receptor based. I don't know. You want uh, you have one specific receptor as. I was mentioning before, and we want to understand the binding site of this specific receptor. So in our case, what we were working is the TAS2R14, because this receptor accommodate, I mean, can be activated by almost 50% of the compounds that are known to um, uh, bind bitter taste receptors. So this means that it's an important receptor for bitterness. But in other cases, you might be interested in understanding the molecular recognition in a higher level. So you want to understand why, why this receptor can be activated by so many compounds. And instead, you have another receptor that can be activated just selectively by one or two compounds. In this case, you will look at all the repertoire of the receptors. And this is also something that we did just using different tools like bioinformatics tools applied just to machine learning or linear regression, some statistical method that help you to correlate properties with function. And in this case, the function will be this ability of the receptor to bind many or few ligands. Uh, or you can you, you may want to find antagonists for a specific receptor. Uh, but in all these cases, the approach that I basically and routinely I use are the basic tool of the uh, computational chemistry that are used in pharma. So you just use uh, homology modeling, docking, uh, and then you can use uh, ligand-based tools. You can calculate all the molecular molecular uh, properties of the small molecules, ranging from the physiochemical properties to topological properties. And you use this nice tool that are routinely used in drug discovery just for a different purpose that in this case will be to understand the activity of bitterness. And then once you, you find suitable compounds, for example, you, you've looked at a receptor that has 50 different, different ligands and you try to figure out which one would be the best to induce this bitter taste, do you translate this research into a wet lab setting or are you collaborating? Of course. Okay. Of course. So uh, we have... We had and we have many collaborators, and in this special case, it's very important not, not only to go back to, with the, to the experimentalists, but also to have uh, uh, iterative working with them. Because from the beginning, so from the modeling of this receptor, uh, since you have a very low sequence identity, you don't want to do all the computational work, and then just at the end, you will discover that your model was wrong. I mean, any model is wrong, but it was completely not predict predictive. So you want also to, um, to, to use experimental information from the beginning. So after the modeling, there will be usually there is, uh, there are position in the binding site that we predict that are important that undergo to mutagenesis, to experimental mutagenesis. And then you take back the experimental results and incorporate in your modeling. So I mean, it's a very um, collaborative work. It's not 
just computational and then we go to the to the collaborator and this is what i like it a lot to have such a multidisciplinary approach in the project building project management and not only you know at the end of the of the workflow yeah and i think it it provides having the computational side matched up with the with the wet lab side with different from different areas i think it does help advance the research because more brains mean more brain power and more toolkits mean better understanding of of the research that you're doing i think it's fantastic and Please, and you share your research goal with your collaborators so they are not you're more partners than collaborators yeah. So um, we were talking in the beginning of the conversation about, I think it was an olfactory receptor that was when it's knocked out in, uh, in mice, you have less depression. And um, can you tell us more about that? I think it's a very neat model and it's a very, um, very good disease target. Yes. I mean, I, I mentioned this case because, I mean, GPCRs are so many and are so important that sometimes, I mean, we just look at these three, but then in our mind, we just keep uh, thinking about these main players in the GPCRs, you know? And, and you said even uh, these kind of orphan receptors that, I mean, we, we are just discovering uh, can be maybe the new target for important disease where we are still looking for drugs and where we still need for drugs. So here we are really at the, it's a, we are really at the beginning, you know, it's just target identification, you know, that this protein is doing something. And then we know, I mean, we likely now have, um, will have more structure and we currently have many crystal structure Cryo-M is uh, producing a lot of structure. So we have templates for our homology modeling and each day we have more. So we really have good chance to use also molecular modeling to uh, drug design, exploring new area and new uh, GPCRs. Yeah, absolutely. Last month was a structural month. There were so many cryo-M and crystal structures that came out. I think I counted 10 papers in a month, which... It's just amazing to see all these structures come out. And for bitter, or for taste receptors and olfactory receptors, um, are there any structures available? No, but any structure, you know, is a piece of information in this puzzle. Because uh, I mean, I, I, of course, I hope to see one of them very soon. <laughs> because of course, to have a structure of this family will help. Uh, but even having a range of structures from other families can increase um, uh, the description of this family. I mean, the sh different shapes of the extracellular loop or um, the different architecture somehow, or even tiny details and that you, you have just when you have many structure can provide inputs also in research in other different areas. I like the, uh, the fact that you said it's a puzzle. I also see it as a, this huge puzzle and getting more structures is like getting more snapshots of, of inactive and active states of, of these receptors and just putting it together will be useful to better understand the structures or the function of GPCRs for which right now currently we don't have a structure for but I, I really like it it's a it's a huge very complicated yet very interesting puzzle speaking of puzzles 
what other tools other than crystal structures you feel like we need more in order to better understand um, taste receptors, for example, and olfactory receptors? Molecules, <laughs> compounds as tools. I mean, um, all for the majority of these receptors, the researchers started like, I mean, like looking at this receptor as the chemical senses receptors, as receptors for bitter taste as receptor for odorant molecules but actually now we know that these receptors are expressed everywhere so as i was mentioning this particular example is expressed in the brain and in the nose and the molecules that go in contact with the nose maybe are not the same one that are in the brain and this is true for any of these receptors so um, these are expressed in Echnomotopically, so out of the usual place. So we have odorant receptors in the intestine, in the brain, and then we have bitter taste, bitter taste receptor in the heart. So really everywhere. And what these receptors are doing there, we don't know. Uh, I mean, in most cases, we don't know. Of course, there is a lot of research on it because this is now an important question to, question to answer. But also, which is the chemical space of molecules that this receptor can recognize. Now we know that it's still partial. So we have this puzzle now because the odorant molecules that we, rec we can recognize with our nose may have different uh, properties, can cover a different chemical space of the molecules that bind the odorant receptor in the intestine. And so may we may have molecules that are metabolites that are actually endogenous ligands and they they may have different structure. So the more we know also about the chemical of this receptor, more information we will have also about the function, but in, the, in between from the structure to the chemistry, there is the biology, what this, uh, how this molecule bind this receptor, we will know more about the molecular recognition. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that there were uh, receptors in the in the intestines and in the heart. You'd think, why, why are you, why are the, Especially in the heart, what do you do with with a taste receptor or an olfactory receptor in the heart? The other question: Are they only bitter receptors? So, <laughs> and it's many of the compounds that were found are like um, secretion of bacteria. So there is a lot of evidence that, for example, bitter taste receptor can play a role in the immune system, like a, 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 an additional immunity part. So you can rec recognize molecules that may be taste bitter, but I mean, that, that are actually secretion from bacteria. That is awesome. And we could also hypothesize that these receptors could form dimers with other receptors, for example, in the brain. I think it's a, it's a, understudied world but it's still it holds a lot of secrets that are definitely uh, worth studying so one of my questions uh, in the in the list i had sent you is uh, was do you think gpcrs are still good drug targets i think we all agree that gpcrs are still good drug targets <laughs> but uh, i wanted to hear what were your thoughts about what we know currently for example on taste and olfactory receptors and disease or at least as drug targets, does anyone target them? Yes, I mean, what we were saying until now, I think that is already quite um, convincing that I do believe that GPCR are maybe the drug targets. I mean, they are in the cell 
on the surface of the cell, they, they have this nice, defined binding site. So computationally, they are the perfect drug targets. But also we discussed that there are many unexplored area and many potential of drug ability that are then, there is still a, a, a need to know more about these proteins. And there are many GPCRs that uh, we still don't know that I definitely think that uh, they are drug targets. And just to answer um, more specifically your question about the taste receptor, so we are we have currently on a clinical trial uh, on phase two one. Um, I mean, a class of compounds that are uh, isohumulons. So these humulons are usually op-derived compounds uh, that are important for the taste of beer. So they give this typical flavor of beer, typical taste of beer that we really like. So it's a bitter taste that actually is not disliked at all. And, you know, as many natural compounds, these compounds were, taught, were found to be very um, good and to be bioactive compounds, to be good in many several, I mean, to have many um, properties. And one of the important properties was this anti-diabetic properties that they had. And of course, I mean, you have a natural molecule uh, with an interesting properties, and then there is some uh, from a certain, some um, therapeutical indications so, or uh, drug industry can get interested. This is not something new, you know? I mean, it is a, um, a flow that we, we can tell many stories about it. But what was interesting that after this molecule were patented and many studies came after, they found that actually the molecule, the receptor responsible of this activity is actually a bitter taste receptor. So the TAS2 are one in the intestine. And so this is responsible, this looks to be the receptor responsible for this anti-diabetic property. So we have actually one uh, drug candidate target bitter taste receptor. So we are not so, I mean, it's not something that is not achievable. It's something that is already in place somehow. That is great. I never thought that you would target taste receptors in the context of, of diabetes. It's very, very interesting. Maybe we will know many more stories in the next future. <laughs> I am sure that we will. So you had also mentioned that one of the missing key pieces were two compounds to study taste receptors and olfactory receptors. How um, how would we get more to a compound? Or how would we, I guess you'd have to screen, but where do you start screening when you want to study these receptors? Also here, there are many ways. I mean, uh, my small contribution, I mean, the contribution from uh, a um, um, computational lab could be virtual screening. So you just screen uh, because this, you know, it's uh, the cheap alternative to an output screening. So you can have your models about bitter taste receptor model or just bitter test predictor or other predictor. And you can screen, I mean, now we have this huge library of molecules that can be used to prioritize or uh, metabolites library. And start. this is what we, we currently do, you know, to start to find some hits and then to look around these molecules and look around this chemical space. But then there can be biggest investment, like really high-throughput screening. 
with this receptor and that can provide uh, indication from um, less focused uh, area, just random. I mean, I, I think that in this stage, uh, it's important where, I mean, the, the biological relevance of the molecule, but it's also important the chemistry to understand really how big is the chemistry that can um, respond to these receptors. We haven't spoken about this, uh, but I was wondering what are the basic, you know, one to two signaling pathways that are activated in, for example, taste receptors? There, are, there is not a huge no knowledge. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that you are asking about arresting, beta arresting signaling or so what we know is that we have this gastrocin, this alpha um, protein that respond to this, um, that signal with the with taste receptor. But for example, we cannot exclude that there will be something similar uh, to other GPCRs. It's just that, I mean, the, lab, the research stage is a bit in a earlier stage here. The reason I was asking is because we were talking about, you know, doing doing in silico uh, screening and then moving on with some some tool compounds or so compounds that give you hits uh, on screen into a high throughput screening in the wet lab. And what do you look for when you do a high throughput screening in the wet lab? That's why I was yeah. wondering. Um, I mean, you have to measure something, a physiological response in that sense. So it would be a regular quote-unquote regular G-protein activation or, or beta rest? Yes, usually what, it, what it's, it's, it's measured is the calcium imaging okay. using um, the regular G-protein um, uh, activation and the cascade. Got it, got it. Oof, calcium imaging, it's a, it's a very tricky technique, definitely. All right. Um, at the beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned that you joined uh, you started your lab at the end of 2018. Um, what have been the challenges as, as a new faculty that you've been facing? Or what are the positive things of being uh, faculty? The positive things are easier, you know, it's something that you are somehow, uh, you know, this the academic career is always um, a lottery, you know, you're always, you start and you never know where you end up till the day before you sign the contract, you never know if it will happen or if you have to change a different part. So of course the excitement to go on, it doesn't mean that you achieved already your um, academic, uh, your professional dream. I don't know how to say, because then you can always have different dreams personally, but I mean, it's already an accomplishment of something that was, uh, uncertain until the day before so you know you really say okay I'm here now I made it and this is already something very exciting to start and then all the things that you were thinking in this um, uh, perspective becomes true so the recruitment of students and to be part of uh, uh, the institute's um, uh, management team, uh, all these new activities that were, you know, not uh, part of your routine becomes part of your agenda. And this is very nice because you start to be, you start to have an active role also in the research management. You know? And so this is very nice. And the challenge are the more or less the same <laughs> because you, do, you start doing something new that you don't know if you are prepared. I mean, no one is prepared, I guess. And so you, it, it's challenge to 
to be in the somehow in the other side. So just for example, in student recruitment, you are all just you were interviewed one month before and one month after you are in the other position and you know it's sometimes sometimes um, difficult to change this perspective and to be to start to understand things from a different perspective i don't know what it means to be a faculty but the way i see it is um it's an opportunity to contribute in a different way to a field to contribute to the department that you're part of uh, at the same time, it is as stressful as setting up a new a new program or setting up a new experiment when you're a postdoc, and it's a high stakes, it's a high stakes job, and high stakes but high reward at the same time. Yes, but in this, I have to say that I was somehow also well prepared by my supervisor in the postdoc. Doc, because I have to say that Masha always um, trained me not only scientifically, but she also push me in this um, uh, also uh, with the collaborators somehow she always wanted me to be responsible of a decision or also to participate in grant um, writing not in an active part but at least to know which is the procedure and I was in a in a position that I could study uh, or be uh, their activities and not just, you know, that everything, I mean, that I was in a ball and then uh, in a bubble and then suddenly I went out of this bubble. So I learned step by step how, and, and I'm learning. I, know, I didn't get yet to a really professorship position. I still have small duties. That's great. Yeah. And it gives you also the ability to see if you like uh, this kind of career track, having a supervisor and mentor that sh- gives you other responsibilities than your own research, you know, writing grants, as you mentioned, but also taking part in decision-making allows you to, on the long-term, see if you'd like to continue in this in this career. Yes, and this is extremely important. It is. It is extremely important. So for scientists or young scientists, junior scientists who want to get into the field of studying GPCRs and get into academic positions, for example, what would be your advice to them? Um, I think to be passionate, I mean, because it's really important to love this job, you know, because otherwise it's, it makes you very difficult to, to do it, uh, to be persistent, because this is something that you learn with research. I mean, it's not something that you do something and after one month you get what you want. And if you are not passionate and you are not persistent, it's uh, very stressful to do a job that doesn't lead results, you know. Um, but also to, to, to think of being an investor of yourself, you know. So because I, I think that, everyone should i mean a young scientist should should read should study should should do the, the the most as you can to learn as much as you can not only scientifically but also networking also the people who do your job so to be passionate on exactly the field that you work on it because this will be extremely useful later and so to to look at the future you know to to look at your future, even when you do your um, PhD, your postdoc, because the future will be later. So to be somehow visionary. 
Definitely. I mean, a postdoc can end, the PhD ends, and you have to think ahead. And during these experiences, figure out what you like, what you're passionate about, and also figure out what you don't like. Yes, this is what what we were saying before. Not not just doing things. Right. I mean, I mean, you you have your project and you have to do your project, but you have to think what is behind this project, uh, who are the people behind the literature of this project, who are the um, things that bring this project also finding, and to understand if this applies to you after, or if this doesn't work for you. And this is, I mean, because otherwise you just end up in a part that you didn't like. Exactly. Agreed. Agreed. What I wanted also to ask you is, throughout your career, you had mentioned that you got came into close contact with GPCRs in Masha's lab. Um, but throughout your entire career, were there any moments as a scientist when you discovered something or you learned something and you said, well, aha, this, this changes my perspective on, on the project I'm working on? Yeah, I think that one is when I was saying before um, to be um, persistent, this is what I learned that during my PhD, I told you that I, I did this um, um, internship, if we can call it in Germany, in a structural biology lab. And, you know, working with the computer, I mean, you, you don't get results, but you always have something, you know. But working in the wet lab, it can be very frustrating in terms of results. So I was working in this uh, project of crystallization, starting from the expression of the protein and so on. And the idea was to crystallize the carbonic anhydrases too with five molecules, small molecules. And I was there for uh, six months. And what I got, it was only empty proteins until, I don't know, for five months, just empty proteins. I was, we had an in-house uh, X-ray and my protein was always empty. And then two weeks before I just changed it. I mean, I changed many parameters for five months. It's not that I it's always the same experiment, but my successful experiment was two weeks before to leave. So it was almost the end and then this was just an intermediate stage because i mean i mean when you i saw my ligand but i couldn't have i didn't have any more time to um uh, to refine the structure and then this was actually sent to the synchrotron so actually the my professor then um allowed me to come back with the um, the first postdoc with the research um contract just to finish the project but it for me it was i mean I think that was my happiest moment uh, in my life to see my ligand inside the protein and to see that I didn't give up because I was just finishing, you know, because uh, two weeks before you can just also pack your stuff and think, okay, I'm leaving. I didn't succeed. And, and it didn't change anything in my life. You know, It's not that this really was a ha moment that uh, um, I got some... Uh, reward, but it was um, actually a life experience that really you should, if you want something, there is no time and no deadline, you know, for it. You have just to try until the end. <laughs> you persevered and look, I think it's a, it's a great personal accomplishment when you worked so hard on changing all these parameters and it's not a trivial thing to, to crystallize 
proteins. Yes, and, and of course, for a for for a computational chemist, this is the best thing to have your protein. You know, to really see what a protein means is not just download the file, <laughs> but it's a lot of work behind and. To really understand what there is behind any coordinate, um, this I think that was um, one of the most significant experience uh, in my rest, my scientific background and you know, competences. That's great. So perseverance, love what you do, and figure out if you love uh, every aspect of of what you do and how much can you tolerate the things that are less pleasant but still get you to the, to the goal where, where you want to get to. It's also a nice exercise in general, you know, because I don't, I, I don't think that there is something that you can love 100% of all aspects. You should be feel comfortable and well to do it uh, in any kind of uh, decision you make. And this should be clear. Definitely. Yes, definitely. Yes, there is that threshold of tolerance so it's important also to not un- underestimate, um, you know, the the job or to have, I mean, this um, u- utopic image of your work or or your life in general should be very, uh, I mean, because also this can create a lot of frustration after. Yeah, I think I think everyone who who has ever worked in a wet lab knows how frustrating it can be and 99% of the time the experiments don't work and then when it's 10 10 p.m and it finally works and you're the only one there and you want to share it but still thank god for social media now you can uh, you know tweet or or facebook your uh, your gel or uh, you know whatever you're you're trying to achieve that's great um what i wanted to ask you also is uh if you have any job openings on your team, where can people find it? Um, I just want to also mention that on the Dr. GPCR website, we have a career page. You're welcome to send us uh, any job descriptions that you might have. It's free. We're just going to copy and paste them there and then uh, put on a link to uh, to your email, for example, or to your website. Yes, I will definitely do. Uh, we should have opening in the um, fall. Uh, because I mean, my group is growing, but then I mean, this year we had this um, pandemic that somehow interrupted <laughs> everyone's plan. Uh, but hopefully, we will restart soon. Everything, and usually, I post everything also in my Facebook page, in my LinkedIn, Twitter. But I think that it's important to have this. Uh, um, uh, pages where you where you have more audience. Definitely. And it's sometimes very hard to find um, if you're looking for, for example, a non-academic position and you want to continue working on GPCRs, I find it very challenging to find these positions. So our goal with this career page is to aggregate all types of GPCR related positions, whether they're postdoc, whether they're staff scientists, or whether they're industry positions, again, postdoc there or any scientist or other positions that are related to the field so that people can go there and, and continue working on, on their favorite receptors. And I was always looking for position and I found very difficult, as you are saying, but it's also very difficult to find candidates. And this is something that I didn't um, expect because just it's difficult to find the match. 
because sometimes, so for example, I will start teaching just next year. So without teaching, I, I just rely on my colleagues because there was no network for looking for students, for example. And this is, so it's so important to have some such uh, initiative that try to match these two interests. Exactly. And that brings me to, to another um, option that we offer. We also have a membership option. So it's also free. Uh, it's kind of your LinkedIn profile for GPCR scientists. Uh, it's drgpcr.com slash membership. And the whole idea is that you fill out a form, you send us your picture, um, and then we'll post your membership so that anyone, for example, looking for students like you would be, without even beginning to, to teach yet, uh, you could just go on there and look at uh, members' profiles. And then it would be a match made in heaven if you're looking for somebody who has computational background, but also some, some GPCR background at the same time. Uh, I know we're in a, in a COVID world these days, but usually what kind of conferences do you like to go to? Where can people find you? Um... Actually, this COVID uh, phase is not so bad for conferences <laughs> because now many are going virtual. And this is also something so nice that I find because, I mean, especially for young investigators, so for example, for my PhD students, student is started recently. So, I mean, usually you go to the conference when you have something to present or are, but now that everything is virtual, there is also a lot of possibilities to attend conferences as an attender. And this something that I really think that is important because I mean conferences are not just made for the speakers but also for people who are who want to understand this board you know and so these are special occasions so I mean there will be the the third GPCR summit in September <laughs> this is we're very excited about it and we're excited to have it and we're excited to to be able to go virtual to allow people to to join in from any anywhere in the world and um we're, we're super excited if people want to sign up i don't know if you get a chance to to register yes, but it's it. dr.cbcr.com oh great <laughs> um uh, you you we have already 200 almost 200 people who registered so from all around the world so we're really excited um and yeah hopefully uh, hopefully we can we can continue on and create these um annually Yes, and the other thing that is going virtual. So you heard there is there are there is this cost European cost action that are made for um, thematic network network research network. So and the one about uh, signal transaction is called Ernest, and the, uh, also the next Ernest meeting is also going virtual, and it will be in October. Uh, Twelve fourteen, and this is also a nice event. It usually, it's very uh, informal. So it's, I think that it's also tailor-made for young investigators. Uh, so there is a lot of space for early career scientists. And this, uh, I think that the next one is organized by early career investigators, uh, but it's usually very high level. So this is also a nice uh, virtual conference to attend. We will definitely check it out. I think it's a good, it's a good um, balance having a high level conference with experienced speakers, but at the same time gives the ability to young investigators, uh, you know, talented postdocs to present their work and, and have it a little bit more democratized than your regular on-site conference where there is not enough time to give everybody the opportunity to, uh, to talk about their fascinating research. 
Yes, and this is the best environment also to build this network that is so important for everyone. Yes, I agree. My best collaborations came out of discussions at poster sessions. You know, over over a drink and uh, you get to talk and you say, well, I know this person, let me introduce you. And you end up coming out with a cool paper and advancing the field. All right. Thank you so much, Antonella, for your time. Um, it was a great discussion. Thank you. And um, thank you. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. I want to also uh, say to our audience and tell you as well. So uh, people will be able to find this podcast's transcript and information, as well as links to your Facebook, your LinkedIn, and I think uh, your Google Scholar and any other ways to contact you. So if students, for example, who are listening, want to join your team, they'll know where, uh, where to find you. Many thanks. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Antonella. Welcome back. Um, thanks for being here today. I wanted to reach back out and talk to you a little bit about this whole um, COVID pandemic and to see how you were doing and how your team was doing. I mean, it was um, for, for everyone a surprise, you know. <laughs> so I'm molecular model. Basically, I work with my computer. I have remote connections, so everything can work perfectly wherever I am. But suddenly you realize that it's not so. I mean, that you have a social infrastructure that organizes your work, including the kindergarten, and then suddenly <laughs> everything, everything collapsed. And this means that you have your computer Peter, you have your remote connection, but you have also your three-year son around, and also your husband working at home. So you know it's it's really difficult to reorganize everything, and also to to organize then a, a new lab, so a, a lab a group that is under development. So my PhD student started in November and in February we were in the lockdown and this is I mean he managed very well we managed very well but you know it's not so nice to have an international student locked down in an apartment that is with no houses with no family no friends and work to do that is just the beginning of your work you know it's I mean, there are. I know that there are more serious situations, so we want to. But it it was something that we were not prepared to. Definitely. And um, how was the university? The university's response to to the whole COVID situation. I'm I'm asking, for example, some universities. Um, at least here in the U.S., from what I'm hearing, is that everyone was sent home to do remote work and you needed to apply for a special permit if you were doing COVID related research or if you were doing something that was time dependent that would, you know, um, make you lose years and years of, of data. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was the same here. Uh, so our the director uh, organized everything. I mean, we are a small institute, so it was also not difficult to organize and prioritize project that was really urgent. So in our case, we are the, um, I mean, we have, we have not this high priority to go back to the Institute because we can work from home with the computer. So for us, it was not a like a space problem. It was not physically, the problems was not the reorganization of the work in different times and different conditions. Yeah, and also this is when you realize how much human connection is important, and how yes. how much how easy it is to you know 
peek your head into, into yes. the office and say, hey, do you have a second? Yes, and it's different to uh, write a message and say, do you have a message? Because you're already bothering, you know, <laughs> with one messenger. And it's difficult to also have this um, group meeting virtually than physically. For something was also positive, you know, because we said so you need an organization because you cannot just jump in the uh, next door office. So, for example, with my PhD student, we had regular meetings that were very scheduled. And this, I felt that it was much more organized that, than doing just, just lively in the regular basis because we had, you know, some um, daily feedback when we couldn't do daily, but it was very constant because we had to get organized because I, we had to have a feedback each other. But all the rest, and it was just work, you know, <laughs> you lose all the, the, the nice part of your job. No coffee break. <laughs> no. Oh, virtual coffee. I think uh, I was talking to, to someone last week and they said that they were having uh, virtual beer hours <laughs> online. Not the same thing, but still, still very important to have those uh, those connections. Yes, but I have to say that for me, I, I tried, but it was really difficult to to manage everything. You know, to include the social life in this already complicated family and work balance, uh, because I don't know that losing the kindergarten was like a shock. <laughs> it's some. Um, Yes, it's something that you uh, you don't. I mean, from one day to to another, it just your workload increase of one hundred percent. Yes, yes, especially with a three year old and with a five year old, or you know, even even with older children. I think the problem was that you know the schools closed. The schooling. Yes. And at least when they're young, it's not that big of a deal. Although it's a lot of work, but when they have homework. And they have to continue studying and you have Zoom links flying all around every day. And if the school is not ready, it's also very complex. And I also felt that you know, the research work was more intense. I mean, I was involved in COVID-19 project, but behind this, I felt that everyone suddenly, I don't know, we felt the pressure to work more, you know? I don't know if this was impression also or also your impression but I think that the intensity of work suddenly changed it uh, and to have everything was really well it was one of the most intense working periods I have experienced more than my PhD thesis that is you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's a different rhythm it's a matter of getting used to the new normal and also, yes, you're always, always at home. So what else can you do other than working? Yes. And, you know, it did happen to me that I woke up in the middle of the night saying, well, I'm thinking of something I can't sleep. So, well, I don't have to, you know, commute to work. I can just, you know, get up at 2 a.m., work an hour and then go back to sleep, <laughs> which is uh, which is not something that you would you do yes. before. Now you lose any schedule. I mean, because Saturday is like fr Friday, is like Wednesday, and I don't know, the morning is like the afternoon and the evening. So uh, physiologically, in your days, you miss some reference point, you know? Yes. 
You do. And people still here, at least in the US, still tell me, well, have a good weekend. And I say, what does it mean? It doesn't matter. That's true. And I don't know about you, but I always have to look at the calendar to see what day and what date we are. Because I feel like life stopped in March. Yes. And uh, it was, so my husband is teaching. So yes, online teaching. And I mean, yes, very random um, schedule. And each day I was asking him, I have this schedule in my calendar to remind, because we had to, of course, to adjust our time. And each day, each hour I was asking, where are you teaching? When are you teaching? And I say, and you are a scientist and you cannot remind someone, but it was really impossible for me to remind to to remember times and days and i had always to look at it because it was every day was the same so i was completely lost in my work you know environment and i felt also bad like like a mother you know because also having your son together with work i mean you completely lost the quality time you just give food and then television and then sleep and then do something, but you never have this time for walking or, I mean, we had it sometimes, but you never feel, I mean, that now the work time is over and now it starts the family time because everything was together. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. That's, that's a hard, that's the hard part. I think what kept me a little bit more on time was we have a dog so walking the dog is essential and he knows what time we're going. So um, he knows feeding time and he also knows walking time. So that gives you an idea. But then again, it doesn't matter what day you are. You still have to walk the dog and feed the dog. <laughs> so it was a little bit of help. These are things that maybe we never stop it to think of, but are really important yeah. thinking I mean, to in the flow of your day and of your week to have yeah. such I mean standpoint in the day for for the first time i think for a lot of us um not the outside environment but our own clock determined made us determine what we need to do and when we need to do it um it's uh it's definitely a brand new brand new world in that sense did you do anything special with your team to you know keep morale high or did you do like a Zoom meetings that were not about science i know you had mentioned that it was difficult but you still had more meetings any anything um, you can tell us? Yes, I mean our meetings are never so formal. So yes, we always combined. I mean, uh, for now I have just one PhD mm-hmm. student, so it's very easy to keep the. I mean, to have work, but together to have also, I don't know, some other of uh, discussion, and so we shared uh, feeling and problems. I mean, I think that it's a very open relationship so um, as I mentioned you it was also challenging for him so I gave him some time to get organized with this new schedule because I think that it's really it's frustrating to have the family at home but it's also frustrating to be suddenly alone you know while you were building your new social life and this is also difficult to suddenly, I mean, be at home and having only your work. Uh, this is also not something healthy as well. So we try to, I mean, there was nothing formal to to discuss all these things, just randomly uh, to check how we are and what we do. 
yeah of course of course and um so how are things now are you planning to go back to the office are you reopening or you're still working from home so the institute reopened in the middle of june okay but together with the lockdown we have also so a relocation of the building. So um, our office were ready just this week, but um, the policy is to have still part-time. I mean, we will work three days per week in the Institute and we can work at home the other days. But as uh, computational uh, people, we are not, I mean, for us, it's not so important really to, to be back, back in the Institute to work, but we, we are going back to work from next week, as you mentioned, to have a social uh, um, network to go back, I know, because it's different to say, okay, we are here, this is our working place, and to reorganize the things also in a different space and not just at home. it's really different to work at home I, I i i always like it to have this um home office home working because when you have a lot of work <clears throat> at home you can really you know just focus on work but on a long range focusing only at work <coughs> it's really dangerous <laughs> even for the work itself is not only because you know it's you need to to have a um, breathing and you know, from and to have fresh air also for your brain to think of what you are doing and not just to to do it yes i agree i think you're you're you get your best ideas in the shower not necessarily yes. in front of the computer <laughs> all right thank you so much Antonella, for taking the time uh we will thank you all the best um hopefully uh and hopefully yes we will go all back to work regularly soon yeah. <laughs> yes yes and i wish you good luck going back to work next week and uh, uh we'll be in touch thank you thank you thank you bye. thank you amina bye thank you for listening to this dr gpcr podcast episode we hope you enjoyed it if you'd like to sponsor us please visit drgpcr.com sponsor your support will allow us to bring you more podcasts and exciting GPCR content. Next time on the Dr. GPCR podcast, our guest will be Dr. Amina Pradhan from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you to Dr. Antonella DiPizio and Attila Forrest, music by Rosa Bershish. I want to also say thank you to Jin Chong and Shivani Sajdev, who are our talented, dedicated science communicators. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. Thank you for the privilege of your time, and until next time, stay safe. <music>